Hey, welcome to part two of uh, three on Fahrenheit 451. The general structure of this podcast is we're going to mention what characters are going to be bigger in this portion. We're going to go over a brief summary of part two. Um, we're going to talk about the challenges and choices in this portion. And and if we can, what what in the essential questions ties back to this part of the story. With that, let's begin. All right, so into the characters. Uh, the characters that play a prominent role in part two are, of course, Montag, as he's still our POV character and our main character. Mildred, his wife, who, uh, surprise, surprise, is still his wife. Um, but she plays a bit bigger of a role in this portion. Uh, Beatty actually plays a bigger role, mainly towards the end. And we get introduced to a new character who plays a major role as well, Favor. Favor is a former literary scholar and, I believe, professor who one day met Montag and ended up giving him a poetry book. This, along with some other books um, Faber gave him, are stored away in, I believe, a vent in Montag's house. And that's what kicks off this portion. Additionally, Montag will, later on, as I'll explain, go to meet Faber and talk to him about his new revelations on society. With that, let's get into the summary of part one, of part two, sorry. All right, and into our summary of part two of Fahrenheit 451. So where we left off in the first one was where Montag realized Clarice McClellan, McClellan was missing and presumed dead, and where he showed his wife the books in his attic. So when we start off part two, they're reading these books, and Mildred is fed up with them. She's irritated by them. She sees no meaning in it. It's not entertaining for her. It can't hold her for very long, whereas Montag's intrigued by these new ideas that he's never been exposed to. She discards of the books, and I don't mean she, like, burns them. She just walks away from them. And reminds Montag that some friends are coming over to watch the family on the parlor soon and that he mustn't bring this nonsense with him. He reluctantly agrees and before the friends get there, he goes to a man named Favor's house. Now, as I explained in the character section, Favor is a former literary scholar who, you know, was discredited once books were discredited. And is paranoid of local authorities, but who notably gave Montag the books he has hidden in his house. So, Montag goes to his house, and after, you know, Faber makes sure he's not the police, and that, despite the fact that he is a fireman, he's not going to, like, expose him or anything, he lets him in, and they just talk. Montag talks about these revelations he's been having. He talks about how he doesn't even care for his wife because his wife doesn't care for him, that she likes the family more than she likes him, that they don't even remember when they met, that no talk is interesting, what's the point of anything, and Faber remarks about his own thoughts with that, right? They talk and talk, and Faber eventually concludes that this man is an ally, that Montag is an ally, and so Faber, having tinkered around with radio things, gives him an earpiece. This is essentially an earpiece that allows Faber to talk into Montag's ear and hear what's going on all around Montag. They each have one of their own. With that, Montag goes home, to which he is greeted by his wife and her friends, all talking and gossiping about the parlor and about the family. He finds their surface talk irritating, and obviously surface level. He finds no meaning in it, and he, if I'm correct in this part, he even remarks to Mildred 
does the family love you? And she's unable to answer that question, but isn't bothered by that fact. And he gets enraged. And in this fit of rage, despite Faber and his little earpiece telling him not to do this, he pulls out one of the poetry books and decides to read it. Mildred, in a panic, is just like, oh yeah, firemen are allowed to bring home one book, and we're he's just going to show us how ridiculous this all is. And he pretends to play the part for a moment and reads a poem, right? After he's done, one of Mildred's friends just starts crying uncontrollably and doesn't understand why. The other one says she's leaving, and she's leaving this insane man. She thinks he's out of his mind. And Montag realizes that it was a fit of rage, but at the same time, he doesn't see any wrong in it because he was so irritated by their surface-level conversation. Later, Montag goes back to his job, and Beatty greets him unusually. He's like, welcome back, glad you're not sick anymore, stuff like that. But he starts talking strangely. He starts quoting works of literature and starts talking about books. Starts pressing Montag. Have you read any books? What do you think of books? Right? Stuff like that. And Faber, correctly, uh, tells Montag that this is to unnerve him. And Montag tries to hold his own, although it's made obvious that by the way he freezes up, that it's kind of obvious he has read books. But Beatty strangely drops it as they get an alarm, which is their signal to go to someone's house and burn some books. They pull up to a house, and it's Montag's house. He's stunned and surprised. He's like, this is my house. What are we doing here? And Beatty tells him that some people informed him that not only did he have books at his house, but he read them the other day. And it was actually multiple people. It was Mildred and her friends. And Mildred is not at all bothered by this, of course, because she's Mildred. Um, and Beatty, being sadistic, I suppose, has Montag go burn the books. He says, how about you do this one? And then he knows him, once you're done burning the books, you're arrested. And so he reluctantly does burn the books. And is about to accept his fate when he gets knocked down and the earpiece Faber gave him is knocked out. And Beatty picks it up. He hears Faber and talks about finding him. And that's when Montag, in a fit of fury, uses the salamander, or that that's what the name for the flamethrower is, on Beatty and burns him alive. He also burns alive the other two firemen who are also there, I believe. The two unnamed firemen, Rip. And that's where we leave off on part two. Things escalated pretty quickly. Alright, now we're in the challenges and choices section. After a lot wilder of a plot summary this time around, the challenges stay the same in some ways and change in others. The main challenge of Montag is still reevaluating his stance of the world around him, but he has some other challenges, some more grounded ones, some more basic ones, if that makes sense, right? Like, he has the challenge of keeping his newfound revelation secret. He has this new knowledge, this new outlook on life that makes 
his life so irritating because he knows it's wrong. And so he has to struggle to keep that contained. And he actually fails, as we see in the parlor scene. He ends up reading poetry. He ends up coming as close as he possibly can to confessing to Beatty that he's read books and that he likes books, right? And so that's another challenge he faces. He faces navigating a world he no longer sees as good. And so now we come to the question, who's making choices? Well, now Montag's not the only one making choices. In my last segment, I said it was mostly Montag and that other people influenced his decisions. And in large part, that's still true. Montag is making a lot of decisions. He made the decision to read the poetry book. He made the decision to go to favor. He made a lot of decisions in this chapter, but so did other people. Other people, such as Mildred and her friends, made the decision to call the fireman on Montag. Beatty knew that Montag had been reading books, not only made the decision to confront him about it in his own absurd way, but also made the decision to force Montag to be the one to burn the house in a kind of sadistic way. So we have a lot more character agency with the side characters in this section. And how is our main character, Montag, affected by this? Well, I feel that the role of other side characters making more decisions that influence Montag, um, as opposed to the first section where it's mostly Montag making decisions, helps the reader understand Montag's feeling of helplessness. Montag notes many times after that, now that he's had these revelations about reading I and mean, about his society and his fast-paced media, it's such a struggle for him to not openly rebel against it, right? He feels helpless. He feels now, like, now that he's against the tide of the society he lives in, he feels like he's swimming upriver. He feels like he's drowning. He wants out, but he doesn't see a way out. And these characters making decisions that impact him only influence that. Beatty forcing him to burn the books he loved. Mildred and her friends turning him in. Things like that. It makes him feel helpless. And that helplessness grows and grows and grows to the boiling point where finally, finally, at the end of the book, it snaps. He has these two decisions. He has the decision to cave in to the helplessness, or he can make the decision to break free, and he makes the decision to break free in killing Beatty and the other two firemen. <clears throat> And now we're going to move on to the part where I talk a little bit about the society that Montag and, you know, his co cohorts, the entire cast of this section, live in. Now, last time, you know, I gave a very brief description, you know, it, it thrives on fast-paced media, results in higher suicide rates and more violence. Here, we get into the depth of how it affects citizens. It makes life dull, as we already knew, and that was actually mostly the first part. But it also makes things like being confronted with in-depth media, frightening. As we see in one of Mildred's friends breaking down, sobbing when Montag reads poetry. In a way that it also makes profound emotions scary, it also makes them non-existent in a way to some citizens, like Mildred, who is reading a poem that supposedly invokes emotions. Poetry is meant to evoke emotions, yet she feels nothing towards it. She's fed up that it doesn't get to the point, that it's not entertaining. And so it makes them creatures fueled on entertainment who 
when confronted with in-depth passionate thought are fearful. Now onto how this section ties into how we answer the essential questions. So as I mentioned in the last segment, the essential questions were, does a culture or community have a right to censor its artists? When does the government have the right to restrict freedoms? And what are the benefits of challenging the social order? The second question is kind of a personal opinion one. So I'm going to focus more on the first and third. So the first one, does a culture or community have a right to censor its artists? Well, this section lends more evidence as to no. And I find that in the parlor scene is a great way of doing this. Because when it's artists are censored, you can see how like a lack of exposure to art affects people. Again, the guest breaks down crying. And we also see it in favor. When he's been censored his whole life, he turns away from books. He hasn't read the Bible in years, and he's paranoid. Turns to tinkering with radios rather than his passions. Right? Um, and the third question, what are the benefits of challenging the social order? Last time I answered enlightenment, and I still answer that today, but, however, we also see the more negative effects of that enlightenment. Feeling that the social order is against you, and that the majority of the population is on board with something you're so fundamentally against, as is Montag's view, damages him emotionally and immensely. He's unable to survive in the society like he used to because he doesn't agree with it on a fundamental level. And he just has an outbreak. He almost appears insane in this portion, but he's not. He's simply he's simply reevaluated the society and come to the conclusion that it's not good, but the fact that the social order remains in place, like him not agreeing with it, it's not changing it. And that's what frustrates him. All right, now on to the conclusion slash my final thoughts for this portion. So um, I mentioned in the first part, I was, had high hopes for Fahrenheit 451 and I didn't like it. This part changed that a lot. I feel like the first part, because it was a lot of exposition-y stuff, lost me. But the second part, when things started to really kick up, I was interested, especially, especially at the end where Beatty got burned alive. So I read this and part three in the same day. And the reason why was because of that ending to part two, I was so enthralled that I couldn't put the book down, literally. I like, I finished the whole thing because I was, I just couldn't put it down. And so I think uh, my initial like thing about, oh, I don't really like it, it's a little boring, was just mainly the first part. I, I, I suppose the first part, like, because it was a lot of exposition, is probably why I thought that way. Um, other than that, I mean, I don't really have a lot here. I do like how it switches gears from the re-enlightenment to, uh, sorry, the reevaluation to, like, how real I, like, he's come to the conclusion now, like, especially with the end of part one, that the society is bad. He's not like, is it or is it not? He he knows it is, but now he's struggling to survive in that society now that he knows it's that way. So I like the shifting gears. It's really cool. Uh, with that, I think I'll end out.